You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 189, Lessons Learned Serving Domestic Survivors of Sex Trafficking. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, we have been on a journey together for the last eight years in producing the show and really aiming to do if not all three of those, at least one of those every time we get together, studying the issues, being a voice, and ultimately making a difference in bringing an end to this terrible thing that we all are working hard to end. And today, a conversation that I know will help us all to learn some more lessons, correct? Absolutely. Well, we are thrilled to welcome to the show today, Polly Williams. Polly has over 18 years of experience in all aspects working with youth, including those experiencing homelessness, mental health challenges, and substance abuse. Polly's love of working with young people came from extensive practical experiences as an outreach worker on the streets of Melbourne, Australia, where she provided crisis response, harm reduction, needle exchange, and overdose support to homeless youth. Polly also spent six years working in Venice Beach as director of programs at Safe Place for Youth, in which she developed, implemented, and managed their street-based outreach, case management, drop-in, and on-site therapeutic programming. Polly is currently the program supervisor of Orangewood Foundation's The Lighthouse, a transitional living program for young women who are survivors of sex trafficking. Polly developed and implemented the program in 2016 using a framework of trauma-informed care, harm reduction, and a survivor-centered approach. Polly, Sandy, and I are so glad to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, we're excited. And I know that your rich background contributes significantly to how you approach working with the young women in your care. And so I thought we should kind of revisit a couple of important priorities in delivering care for survivors. And that would be looking at a victim-centered approach, how that works, and how you implement it at the Lighthouse. Sure. So victim-centered approach really is the concept by which we live and breathe when we work with our young women at our transitional living program. The way that we work with a victim-centered approach is that we provide and we give the power back over to the young lady who's been trafficked for them to tell us what their needs are, what their concerns are, and for them to lead us in their journey. So their priority might be around their health, maybe around getting into education, maybe around safety. So we work with them and they lead us. We support them in their journey. Wow. So this idea of empowering them and then it becomes survivor-driven services, really. And Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that is very counter, 
I mean, you know, I'm a pediatric nurse by in my background. And so I would come and I have a protocol and I follow that. I don't go around to my patients and say, how would you like me to serve you? And so I have conversations with people who don't get that. What is the rationale? What drives you to be so responsive to survivor empowerment? You know, it is so important that the survivor take back the control that they've lost while they're in that trafficking experience. You know, from not being able to choose what clothes to wear, how to have their hair, what they can eat, when they could sleep, everything is taken away. So our very first role is we need to give that power back. And that's not always easy, especially for those who have been trafficked for, you know, quite a long time. Being given that power back is is uneasy. Like, you know, what does that look like? How does that feel? So we really walk hand in hand with these young with the young women who come into our program and we allow them to decide what they want to eat for their first meal when they come. What groceries would they like to buy? So we go right back to the very basics. When the, a resident first comes in, we go to Target and allow them to pick out what clothes, what underwear, what shoes, what socks they want. So we start right at the very beginning. This is your life. You are now in control. You make the decisions. Wow. And that is very counter to most service provider programs where we're trying to scale up and we want to serve a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So here's the menu if you don't like it wait till next time. Yeah, so you're, yeah. you have a very different approach. And I loved when I read the report, which I think that's <laughs> downloadable online too. So we'll put a link to that because you hit on what that empowerment looks like in the context of the culture that you grow at the lighthouse in case management, sure. in safety planning. And here are the components, the recipe, if you will, building trust, promoting autonomy, promoting positive behavior change, understanding Mm -hmm. and maintaining safety, empowerment, understanding victimization, goal development and obtainment, and leadership opportunities. And I just thought that's a recipe for a success for any kid, any kid. (laughs) But we know that you work with a very unique population. So I'd like to talk (laughs) through the lessons you've learned since you implemented this two years ago. So let's look at lesson number one. (laughs) Awesome. It seems like so long ago, but it it, it was only two years ago, but it's been an amazing uh, two-year journey. And I'm just like, just so proud of where we are right now and the team that we have and, and the young women we've worked with and we've touched. It's, it's been amazing. And you deserve to be really proud of that too. It's yeah, a great, great model. <laughs> so lesson number one. Lesson number one, labels. We often hear the word victim, you know, victim-centered approach and they were a victim. And, and then we often hear the word survivor. So we came in thinking, you know what, you know, survivor sounds a little less traumatizing So we kept saying survivor this and our survivors and our survivors. And our young lady was saying to us, we don't want to be called either. And we're kind of like, oh, hang on, we're trying to empower you to be survivors. And and they're like, we just want to be like known as any other regular young lady. Mm. Like we just like the same music. We want to watch the same shows. We want to be able to experience college and going to school. And we don't want to be reminded every day 
of our past. Wow. And so that was really interesting for us to take on board and have a conversation with our young ladies. Okay, well, what does that look like? Because we also want to not only respect, you know, where you're coming from, but we also need to still have conversations about things that have happened in order to support you in your journey, you know, from victimization through to healing. So we work very much on a one-on-one basis with the young women in terms of if they want to call themselves a survivor, we we embrace that. If another one of our young ladies is, I don't want to even hear that word because it's triggering and reminding, that's okay. We don't do that either. So it, it's so individual. You know, everyone's journey and healing is so different. So we just respect where the, the young person's coming in terms of labels and where they see themselves. I'm with them. I don't want to label. I really bristle when people <laughs> try and label exactly. me. I'm not that yeah. one dimensional. So I totally mm-hmm. invite me over. I'll, I'll, <laughs> Fit right in. How about the second lesson? You guys created an amazing curriculum. Oh, my God. Yeah. So about about six months before we opened, actually, um, I wrote all our policies and procedures, curriculum. I got a lot of feedback from a lot of other people. You know, we had to have a structured curriculum whereby the young ladies would come into the program and, you know, out of bed at seven in the morning, you know, have breakfast and they go to group therapy and then they've got something else therapeutic and, and, you know, all their day had to be structured, had to be structured. And that, that never really felt right for me, but that was the feedback I was getting. So we implemented it with our first maybe three young women that we had, and it was horrific. Not only did the young women not want to participate in what we had, you know, they didn't want to get out of bed to go to group therapy. And so then the conflict with the staff of trying to get them out of bed, it, it, there was no therapeutic component to it. And so what we did, we we just stepped back and it was like, we are working with individuals here. We can't put them in a curriculum whereby one of our young ladies has been out of the life maybe for a week, whereas another young lady has been out of the life for two years, but we're putting them in the same curriculum and starting them from the beginning. And that's not where they were at. So we threw that out and we went back to Every one of our young women is an individual with individual needs and wants, and we need to work with them individually. So the whole curriculum went out, and so everything now is around the individual's needs and so how we meet them on a different level. Mm, Wow. That's very intense. It's difficult to scale up with that. So how many residents are you set to receive? We can have it to six young ladies at any one time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And since we've opened, we've had 11 residents come through. All right, let's move on to lesson learned number three. Trust. So this, this was a big one. You know, we had staff working with us with an expectation that the moment the young people come in, they're going to trust the staff. They're going to trust what we say. They're going to trust what we do. And very early on, we learned that that trust needs to be gained. And that happens over time. And not only that, though, we as staff and caregivers, we need to show that we actually trust the young people in order for the young people to feel that they can trust us. So the way that we changed the culture here at the Lighthouse was that young person comes in, we trust that young person 100%. What they say to us, what they do, we're trusting that that they're being honest with us. And we start from there. We don't start with a suspicion around, oh, maybe they're back on the blade or maybe they're doing that or that. We start with, you've come in here for a reason and we trust that you've come here for a reason. 
So we start from a very different level. And we've found that the trust that the residents now have in staff is to the point where they tell us so much, they tell us too much. You know, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to hear everything that happened on the weekend or, you know, when you went out, that kind of stuff. It is at such a different level now that it, it, it really has this family kind of feeling and value about it, which is really quite beautiful. And, and when I was reading what you wrote there, I was really taken with the statement through a restorative justice approach. Can you expand a little bit on what that restorative justice approach looks like? Yeah, sure. So the way that we look at that is if a young person, let's say, for instance, if a young person has a bad day and got really upset and they're in their room and and said they punched a wall, for, for example, so instead of us exiting that young person for violence and being at risk for everyone else, we have a conversation with that young person about, okay, well, what was going on at that point? And then we talk about what could we do next time? And then we work with that young person to patch that wall. So that young, so the young person may work with our maintenance person to come in and together they patch that wall together. So they're learning from the experience with that. We also, in terms of restorative justice too, if a young person maybe says something or does something that has upset someone else, we bring the residents together to have a conversation about it and work as adults to kind of smooth things over. Mm, I could use some practice in that area. <laughs> I think we all could someday. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's look at lesson learned number four. Okay, so this was a big one. Getting a lot of feedback from those who worked in group homes when we were setting up the lighthouse and how to develop it. There was a lot of conversation about how the residents shouldn't have cell phones as they would be calling their traffickers and would have traffickers lined outside the house and it's such a risk. So we started off, and it's embarrassing to say that we started off not having any cell phones in the house. And we thought we were creating a safety. The, The young ladies could have a safe phone list and once a day use a house phone to make a call to someone. When the young ladies started, you know, attending school, community college or working, we provided them with a flip phone. We thought we were doing the right thing and a flip phone so they could call if they felt unsafe or for pickup. What we then found is that the girls were so embarrassed creating new friends. Not only were they anxious about creating new friends at community college, but then to pull out a flip phone. <laughs> and what we, would, what we were doing, we were just setting them up. We were just traumatizing them. They didn't then want to be around friends. They didn't want to go to school because we were embarrassing them but we thought we were doing the right thing by, by saving them, by having this safety net. And so it never sat, sat well with me. So I met with our residents and I was like, guys, this is not working. And they're like, no, we're embarrassed. I said, you need phones. What are we going to do about it? And the really cool thing was that the girls were so receptive. We sat down and we talked through it. And then together, the residents and staff wrote up protocols about safety, about using phones. And that includes turning off locators. That includes protocols around not taking photos inside the house or of each other or posting on social media. Then we had a social media protocol and a lot of just conversation about how to be safe with a phone. Um, And that changed a lot. Again, in terms of, you know, the staff against residents over phone use just totally changed the environment of the house again. Wow. And those are good safety rules for anybody that's concerned yeah. about their young people. 
and taking the phones away, we've all learned is probably not going to work. So this is a life lesson, not just a, an aftercare lesson, I think. Exactly. And the other thing too was that in some ways I felt we were setting up our young ladies to try and like smuggle things in. Mm. So we're trying to, you know, teach and, and, and work with our young ladies that a lot of the maladaptive behaviors that they'd had to work with, in, you know, in group homes or when they're being trafficked and hide and steal, you know, that those things that kept them alive, mm. that they didn't need to do that once they came to the lighthouse. But by putting up some of these rules and barriers, they were having to resort back to that. So it was like, we're saying one thing, we're trying to do one thing, but then we're then reinforcing something else. So it was, it, it, it wasn't working at all. Well, I'm kind of looking forward to hearing from some of our listeners who do a lot of aftercare and how they respond to that. So email me, people, and tell me, have you taken the phones away or are you thinking about giving them back? Let's go on to lesson learned number five. So it has literally taken two years to get to a place where we have an amazing staff. The way that we first staffed the Lighthouse predominantly was with those who had worked in group homes. And those who work in group homes, they have a really tough, tough job and I respect the work they do. However, with the Lighthouse, the Lighthouse, the culture and what I was trying to create is, is very much more of a therapeutic environment whereby we're intentional and we have authentic relationships and we are not punitive and we have conversations. So... Those working in group homes are often wired and hypervigilant because there's things always going on. You know, who's doing what? Where's that young person? What are they about to do? And always on the lookout. So that energy was, was coming into the lighthouse to start with. And, and that was then counterproductive to the therapeutic energy I was trying to bring in. So it takes a while to get, to get a balance, you know, in a uh, new program. But, you know, the staff we have now are very much able to work therapeutically. And one of the great assets of the staff we have now is that they're okay with letting go of control. They don't need to control our young women and you know everything they do. They can step back and allow our young women to make mistakes because it's age appropriate and it's developmentally appropriate that they're going to make mistakes. And the young women know that we're still here when something happens. And that's, that's quite a beautiful feeling to have staff like that. Wow. What kind of training do you require? Our staff do CSEC 101 and 102. And then every month we do professional development training with an outside LCSW. And we do that with topics that the staff have requested. So one month it might be around boundaries. It may be around the impact of trauma on cognitive development. So depending on what kind of themes are coming up in the house, we will then do a session on that to help learn kind of where the young women are coming from and learn skills that the staff can then implement to work more effectively with those with our young women. So one of your practices that absolutely blew me away is you include your residents in the staff hiring process. Tell me about <laughs> that. Yeah, that's a bit that's a bit of fun actually. <laughs> So my director and myself, we always do the very first interview to screen. And then the second interview, yeah, we have our young women come on the panel and we provide a little bit of direction in terms of some kind of areas of question, which are usually discarded, which is cool. 
and the young women go for it. It is kind of like an interrogation. <laughs> That's the feedback I've got from the staff. Uh-huh. They're like, oh, yeah, that was an interrogation. But the young women are awesome. They're like, okay, so with all these scenarios, you know, if I came home at this time in the morning and I was doing this, what are you going to say to me? Or if this happened, what are you going to do? You know, if I'm playing my music really loud or, you know, and it's really cool because it, it, it puts the staff or the potential staff member in a position whereby they really need to answer this question because our young women are, can just see through everything. You know, they've, they've, their survival mode has been to read people so they, they can just read these staff members like there's no tomorrow. Wow. And it's really though empowering for our young women to be in that position whereby they can say yay or nay. And just okay. that part of that empowerment as, as well and being a leader on, on the panel. All right. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to be a fly on a wall and watch that. So moving yeah, on to cool. lesson learned number six, life skill development. So this goes back to when we originally had the curriculum, you know, and there was times of the day which would be, you know, life skill group. Well, I don't know what 18, 19 or 20 year old kind of wants to go to a life skill group. But our young women certainly didn't. And again, it was push and pull with the staff and it was just, we, we didn't get anywhere. So when we moved to the individual programming of each young woman, we did away with, with the group time. And so what we do now, and it just works so beautifully, is that our staff are role models. And so they will work individually with each of the young women, depending on what life skill it might be. So say, for example, one of our young ladies is washing the dishes. Our staff member will wash the dishes with her and may just be like, oh, hey, you know, let's put a bit more soap in here. And so they learn from doing and from watching the staff. Mm. Uh, a couple of our young women have come in, they've never used a, um, a washing machine before. And we don't make a big deal of it. We just make it really natural. It's like, hey, come on, let's, let's just go put the right of washing on now. And they do it together. You know, packing the dishwasher hey, I just need a little bit of help. You know, can you come and, and help me, you know, stack the dishwasher? And so they stack the dishwasher together. So nothing is embarrassing. Everything is just like it would be if you were learning from, say, your mum or your big sister at home. You know, mm. you pick up those things from watching their role modelling and that's what our staff member, members do as well. You know, our staff members don't necessarily cook for our residents. They cook with. Mm. You know, oh, who, who wants spaghetti tonight? Okay, well, if you want spaghetti, let's come up. Let's Let's go, you know. Make the spaghetti now. So, so it's not about doing for, it's doing with. And the young women pick up and are learning without even learning, which is the best kind of learning. Mm, it's so natural. When <laughs> I first started, you know, going through your lessons learned, I thought, oh, wow, they kicked out the curriculum. And then I got down and found <laughs> out you do have guidelines. So for those listeners <laughs> who started freaking out, there are some guidelines. So talk about yeah. that. Yeah. We have what we call guidelines. The, the, our young ladies didn't like the word rules, which was fine. And so we sat with our residents to write the guidelines. We really wanted our young ladies to have ownership. And the best way to have ownership is if they come up with some of these themselves. And so we sat and we went through everything from how to use a phone, what curfew should be like, to you know, how to chores, everything like that. And it was really interesting because the residents' ideas on what some of these guidelines were like were, were so much more punitive than mine <laughs> that a lot of the, the things that they were saying was they would have already been kind of exited from the program had that been a guideline. 
And I'm like, you guys realize that this relates to you too? And then they're like, oh, yeah, okay, let's not put that in. You know, so I'm there saying, well, you know, you guys, young women and adults, so during the week, maybe your curfew should be midnight. Oh, no, mm-mm. everybody should be home by nine o'clock. You know, nothing good happens at night later on. Oh, you want your curfew at nine o'clock? Well, yeah, mm, you know, and it was a lot of back and forth. It was really funny, but it was such a great learning experience for these young ladies. And it was so empowering for them to come up with the guidelines on how the house runs. And, that and so every seems... time we have it. To be the theme every of this time, empowerment. Exactly. Yeah. And every time we have a new young woman come in, our residents who have been here longer talk through what the guidelines are and they've got the ownership. And so then they, they pass that on to you know the next young lady coming in. Okay. And I've got four minutes left in our time slot and we have eight, okay. nine, 10, 11. So let's hit like 30 seconds on case management. Okay. So case management, we threw the rule book out with case management and we do case management wherever the young person wants to do it. So that might be on the beach, it may be at Starbucks, it may be riding a bike, but case management is individualized and the young person, we work at the rate the young person wants to work at and we meet the needs and the goals that they set in their own time pace. And I don't want to rush too much, but that lesson (laughs) learned number nine about interviews, can you just hit the highlights about that. So when we interview each young lady, we don't necessarily need their whole life story. And we just ask that young lady provide information that she feels that we might need in order to make a decision whether or not she may be a good candidate for the house. If there's any kind of signs of distress or uncomfort, we um, then finish kind of with the interview and um, we can pick it up at another time. And the interview is in two stages. It's with myself to start with. And then we have our case manager do the second interview. And then the young lady comes and tours the house and meets our other residents, our other staff. And then we put it back onto the young lady, whether or not she feels it's a good fit to come to the house. And again, we empower her to make that decision, whether or not she wants to come in or not. Okay. And one of the issues in working with this age group is sometimes, because you're set up for 18. Sometimes you have kids that are really close to that. So how do you yeah. manage that? You you address that. Mm-hmm. If the young lady is turning 18 in, a, in, say, like a month or two months, we'll start working with them then. If they're at home with a parent or a caregiver or if they're in a group home, they can come to the lighthouse during the day. They can they start setting their bedrooms, come have lunch, come and have dinner, and then we'll drop them back at night because we don't have a license for them to, to stay overnight with us. And the day they turn 18, they move in and it, the process is really smooth. It, it really decreases a lot of the anxiety and we have a celebration because it's their first night and we have a party and we have food and a good laugh and it's pretty cool. I love that. And I think it's really evident that uh, the stages of change are principles that you follow along this. And we've talked about that. I'll put a link to previous podcasts on stages of change. But lesson learned number 11 absolutely blew me away. And we're going to close with this story. So we had a young lady with us for quite a few months at the lighthouse. And as we know, it's not always the first time a young person leaves the life that they're going to stay out of the life. But this young lady decided to return to her trafficker. So what we did is we were really proactive with her. 
We kept in contact with her by cell, by text. We would check in, hi, how are you going? We really miss you. Are you doing okay? Every couple of weeks, we would meet up for coffee, just check in, help give her some hygiene, buy her a meal, kept checking in, checking in. She knew that we, we still really cared and really would want her back at the program. And one way to ensure that she kept meeting with us was that we had her mail, so we would give her her mail. After about three months, she asked if she could return. And we met with her and we went through you know, guidelines and, and expectations on her return. And she came back home. And when she came back, the residents had all written a you know, big welcome home message on the board and she was back with us and um, it, it was a really great to see her come back and where she is now from where she was just before she came back, she's in a totally different space. But as she, she says, she needed that. She needed to leave and go back to that life and feel it again and feel again what it was like to, to be out of it and, and not want to be back there and in that situation and violated and abused. But she said that was part of, of her journey, needing to go back to feel that to get out of it again. I love that story that the other residents said, welcome home. And yeah. I think we all can agree that that sense of belonging is a huge mm-hmm. step in real empowerment and moving on from yeah. where they were. And the cover of your report has a map <laughs> with the word home mm-hmm. on it. And so yeah. kudos to you for such a great project, a plan. I know it's going to be evolving and maybe next year you'll have more lessons learned to share with us. Yeah, I'm sure we will. That's for sure. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Polly. And we're going to put links in the show notes to the things that we talked about here today. And we will have you come back and give us some updates. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Sandy. Appreciate it so much. All right. Thank you so much, Polly. Thank you so much, Sandy. Uh, Sandy, I just hear so much learning in this conversation. Uh, you know, it's so much of what we do as part of this, uh, as part of this podcast, part of this Global Center for Women and Justice is all about learning. And Polly's such a great example of how her organization's continuing to learn. And we are inviting you to take that step with us as well in continuing your learning. I hope you'll hop online and download a copy of Sandy's book. The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It isn't the end of the, uh, the wisdom on that, of course. It's the beginning. It'll teach you the five critical things that we've identified that you should know before you join the fight against human trafficking. You can access that by going to endinghumantrafficking.org. If today's conversation has brought up a question for you, you can also reach us by email feedback at endinghumantrafficking.org. And we're just a few months away from the next Ensure Justice Conference coming up March 1st and 2nd here in Southern California, 2019. For more on that, go over to insurejustice.com to register early. And Sandy, I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everybody. 